Season 2 of Between Us is sponsored by Medify. I've been using Medify for about a month now, and I love it, because it was developed by real therapists, and it's easy to use and really helpful. Medify, spelled M-E-T-A-F-I, is a self-awareness app designed to encourage a mindful approach to your mind, body, and emotions. Medify is a free download, so try it out on Android or iOS today and be your best self. And the official hairdo seemed to be to wear your hair in a bun. And I just thought, I, I can't, these are not my people, I can't. So I've actually felt inadequate. I felt like if I want to be like these people, I can't because I just cannot do that. Now let me finish, okay? And don't go flying off the handle. You gave that promotion to Bob Enright instead of me? I've got five years seniority over him. I know that. For Christ's sake, I trained him. I know that, but see, the, the company... Oh, the company bullshit. It's your decision. You promoted him. You tell me why. Well, in the first place, see, Bob does have a college degree. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. While he's away at college getting his precious, useless degree, I'm working my butt off at this company. And in the second place, he does have a family to support. And I don't? What has that got to do with Wait, anything? I, look, my hands are tied here. The company needs a man in this position. Clients would rather deal with men when it comes to figures. Oh, now we're getting at it. I lose a promotion because of some idiot prejudice. The boys in the club are threatened, and you're so intimidated by any woman that won't sit at the back of the bus. Spare me the women's lip crap, okay? Now, I know how you feel, and I understand it. You understand zilch. I understand I'm still a boss here. And even though you might be pretty valuable out there, you better get hold of yourself. Okay, okay, I'm gonna leave, but I'm gonna tell you one thing before I go. Don't you ever refer to me as your girl again. What in God's name are you talking about? I'll tell you what I'm talking about. I'm no girl, I'm a woman. Do you hear me? I'm not your wife or your mother. Or even your mistress. I am your employee. And as such, I expect to be treated equally. With a little dignity and a little respect. So the first thing I'm curious about is, where, where do you come from? I was born in Minnesota, but I don't really remember living there. I moved to Chicago when I was four. So I really grew up in Chicago. I found it interesting that your father was a minister. This is Between Us. I'm John Totten. So, I had a whole intro written up for today to introduce a conversation that very much centers around women entering the psychoanalytic community. Our guest today, Sally Bjorklund, has seen and experienced the progress that has happened over the last 25 years. But I don't think what I have to say is really that important. No one really needs another guy explaining to everyone why feminism is important. And the other side of that is that feminism isn't just important to women, it's important to men and boys too. But again, I don't think I need to explain that to you. I think Sally's experiences and her stories are enough. Sally is a psychoanalyst here in Seattle, and I wanted to talk to her because she's interesting and thoughtful. Here's what she had to say. I'm going to start by talking about my mother. She was uh, very different than my father. My father was very mm -hmm. gentle and funny. His uh, mother died when he was five, and his father was an immigrant. So he was raised by his grandma, who didn't really speak English. And so I think he married my mother because he needed a mother. So she was very maternal to mm. him. But she was also this really powerful force uh, in the family. So when it was time for me to go to college, I thought that I had applied to all these schools and was really excited. I got into Goddard, which I was really excited about going to. It's this experimental hippie school. <laughs> and, 
she would not let me go anywhere but this Christian college in Chicago, which I really, really didn't want to go to. She saw college for girls as a way to get your MRS degree, that you go to college, go to Christian college, you meet somebody, you get married. Mm -hmm. That's the main objective for girls. So the reason I had to go to Christian college was to meet a Christian husband. <laughs> so that kind of started me off on this weird uh, path where I didn't have any other option. I went to the Christian college for maybe a year. It was 1969. It was the height of the Vietnam War. Mm. I really didn't go to class much. I was marching and protesting and occasionally going to classes I thought were interesting. And that was a particularly uh, interesting time in Chicago as well. I Absolutely. Mean, you had the Democrat, Democratic National Yes, Convention. I was in Lincoln Park and during the Democratic Convention and my friends were arrested and... So it's like going to a Christian college was like made no sense at all to me. So I stayed there for a year, and then um, I just couldn't do it anymore. Almost none of my friends came back the second year, and I moved to San Francisco. And I mean, that was like a whole other story. It was very hard to be 19 in San Francisco at that time because there were like a million other 19-year-olds with no job skills or education trying to find jobs. And So I ended up going to school like one class at a time all over the country. I majored in music, and then I majored in ethnic music, and that led me to anthropology, and, and I did a lot of odd jobs. I ended up in Seattle. I worked uh, I was a, in a ski area as a ski bum, and I was a whitewater river guide and hmm. a sea kayaking tour guide. And What were your parents thinking at the time? Uh, well, I didn't talk to them for okay. uh, a number of years. And they thought I was a lost cause, hmm. pretty much. I think they were embarrassed. So in my mid-30s, um, I felt like I needed a career. I couldn't just keep doing this. I had collected a lot of credits. I loved going to school. Um, uh, but I didn't, wasn't any closer to having a career. So I had to pick something to do. What I felt about my father was he was one of those people that I knew loved what he did. And I don't, you know, he preached really long, kind of boring sermons, and that wasn't really what he was good at. What he loved was um, visiting people in the hospital and being with families when they were in a crisis. And that made a big impression on me that what I wanted was to love what I did. And I think that being a psychotherapist seemed to me to be kind of doing what he did without the Christian part. The big influence he had on me was uh, that you should love what you do, and it should be something that your your heart is in, mm. and that that was really different than like my mother was never a role model for me. She was all about getting nice furniture and looking good, and some of that is the pastor's family has to keep up appearances. Yes, she couldn't see having ambition as a woman to take your mind seriously at all. My father, on the other hand, said, you can do anything you want. But he also couldn't stand up to her when she decided that she was going to block me. I think my decision to get a degree in psychology was uh, well, I needed a career. And I think at that point, in my 20s, I was married and we had had a house fire, which was very scary, and we had to live at the Holiday Inn for three months while they rebuilt the house. It was a very traumatic, and I had started having panic attacks for the first time, and I went 
I think, to the student health service and saw mm-hmm. a psychiatrist who, I don't know if she was a Freudian, but she never spoke. Mm-hmm. She gave me drugs. She gave me, I think, Valium for the panic attacks, oh, yeah. which helped. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, but she never said anything. I thought, well, I, I guess I'm supposed to talk about my mother, you know, kind of like a New Yorker cartoon, so I talk about my mother, and <laughs> she never said anything. And I had, a, I guess, a kind of similar experience when I moved to Seattle. Um, I still was having some anxiety problems. I went to see a psychiatrist here, who again gave me medication. She didn't really say much. She did say... It sounds to me like the problem in your life is your husband, why isn't he in therapy? So we actually switched. I quit going. And, was that true? Um, yeah. I mean, my marriage was bad. But so I, I had not really had any kind of real experience in any kind of useful psychotherapy until probably when I was in graduate school. And then I was in therapy pretty much constantly. <laughs> I also thought even though it wasn't required, if you're going to be a therapist, you should know what it's like to be in therapy. The other thing that is often said is that uh, people go into psychoanalysis or psychotherapy because um, they're looking to be loved. Hmm. I think that was probably true in some way for my father, that what he was loved for was his the way that he cared mm-hmm. for people. And I think he was really, again, because he lost his mother, and he was kind of raised by the church ladies. They really took a good care of him emotionally as mother substitutes that he was looking, he created that, and he also gave a lot. So I suppose there's some truth in that for me that I don't know if I would say I was looking to be loved, but I certainly was hungry for intimate connection. Mm. And I think that's a way that uh, in the work that we do that we get a lot of that. We get, we hear the most intimate details of people's lives. We become really important to them. It is a very intimate connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know I've uh, heard therapists say that uh, in some ways their relationships, at least some of their patients, have kind of more intimacy than even their relationship with their spouses. Probably a lot of people who do this work do have a hunger for a kind of connection that you don't get. How rare is it to sit down for an hour with someone and face-to-face focus on each other? Well, I think there's a big difference, too, between the kind of classical approach to treatment, at least psychoanalysis. I mean, there's more voyeurism in a way of that it's really only about the patient where you're keeping your own feelings and experience out of the treatment as much as possible compared to a relational or contemporary way of working where you're actually using your own feeling experience um, to do the work. You're giving in a way that, using yourself in a way that I think is quite different than uh, the classical model of the the neutral blank screen Mm -hmm. analyst. There's a book edited by Stephen Kuchik called Clinical Implications of the Psychoanalyst's Life Experiences When the Personal Becomes Professional. It came out in 2014, and Sally wrote the first chapter, called How Betty and Vincent Became Sally and Scott. It's about her own adoption. In it, she writes, For adoptees, I believe the missing parents are internalized as an emptiness, a vacancy, an absence. I, like many adoptees, grew up feeling a sense that something was missing. There was something I didn't have words for or know how to look for. Adoptive parents are often not able to recognize the state of melancholia 
that adoptees suffer from, no matter how much they are loved by their new family. Being recognized, I believe, is something that all of us practicing psychotherapy are looking for. And if there is one thing I hope that listeners would take away from our show, is that the supposed border between patient and therapist is often more blurred than we sometimes think. So you got into your mid-30s, and this is when you started reflecting and thinking maybe you needed to focus more on something that you liked to do, which you found therapy as that. As I understand it, the analytic community has not been terribly ahead of the curve on issues of gender. And so I'm curious about what that was like for you to decide that you were interested in psychoanalysis and to break into that world at that time. In the 80s, that was very much part of the uh, second wave of feminism and reading all that literature and in graduate school. One of my favorite classes was an independent study I did with a professor from the University of Washington in the English department where we read Freud Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we read French feminists' reinterpretations of Freud, so like mm. Jacqueline Rose and Helene Sixou and uh, uh, Chris Deva. And, but I wasn't finding anybody who was a psychoanalyst or uh, who came from a psychoanalytic side of things. It was fascinating reading it with somebody from the English department. Mm-hmm. But she was interested in talking about the clinical implications of that. And I was still a very new therapist, so I didn't really have enough experience to integrate that with, but I, um, so I started taking classes, but I always felt like I can't, this is not my tribe. I'd look around and the women, it seemed like the official outfit to be a woman, to be an analyst was to wear an ankle-length skirt and a, some kind of shapeless but very expensive top and lots of big gaudy jewelry, <laughs> and the official hairdo seemed to be to wear your hair in a bun. And I thought, I, I can't, these are not my people, I can't. So I've actually felt inadequate. I felt like if I want to be like these people, I can't because I just cannot do that. It sounds almost like how I think of being in church. You know, interestingly, at the time, I didn't take it as there's something wrong with those people. I felt embarrassed uh, if people asked me about myself. You know, when they were acquiring their pedigrees of going to college and graduate school, so they then had 20 years of experience when I was still kind of newly out of graduate school. That I felt embarrassed. These people would think I was just weird if they knew that I had been a sea kayaking tour guide or things like that. I came to discover that people actually thought that was interesting. One thing that was really transformative was a class, a transplant from New York taught here that was called Women in Psychoanalysis. That made me really excited because here was the combining feminism with psychoanalysis for the first time in a way that was incredibly intellectually engaging. And also these women were younger and didn't wear ankle-length skirts and wore their hair in buns. So there started to feel more possibility to imagine myself as part of a community of women that were interested in combining feminism with psychoanalytic theory. 
And I think there's also transformation, especially at places like NYU postdoc, where uh, instead of needing to be an MD to be admitted to psychoanalytic training, there were people who had PhDs in other disciplines. They were bringing ideas from outside of psychoanalysis and combining them with psychoanalysis. Lou Aaron has talked about that a lot, that um, uh, women's voices have, have really transformed psychoanalysis. My own experience of that was feeling like, you know, this could be a place for me. It had not been an option for me before because there were no openly gay or, or queer analysts in Seattle. I mean, there weren't any. And I'm pretty sure if I had applied at the time, they would not have accepted me because of that. It's so cognitively dissonant for me to understand that particular community as having that attitude. Well, they would, right. They wouldn't have said, we're not accepting you because you're queer. They would have found some other reason that I had to go, I don't know, work on my narcissism or something. But, but uh, even though the American Psychological Association had officially said um, that homosexuality was not a pathology, the American Psychoanalytic took much, much longer to, uh, I don't know, depathologize. So, and I think in the 90s that was still true. I know people, uh, gay people, who applied to the program this is what happened, that they were openly gay and they were not admitted, but they were given some excuse, some other reason. We kind of we kind of skipped one part where you were in counseling with your husband, and then we skipped forward to psychoanalytic training and the stigma against an out lesbian analyst. So you're wondering, how did I go from being married to being well, an I'm, out lesbian? <laughs> yes, and I'm also wondering if your own... Therapy was part of that process. No, it wasn't. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, you know, there's some people, there's lots of different ways that people get into same-sex relationships. And uh, as a kid, I didn't, I didn't like gender norms. I didn't like being forced to wear dresses. I wanted to dress the way I wanted. I was a tomboy. Mm -hmm. But I didn't feel unhappy about being a girl. I felt unhappy about being forced to be a certain kind of girl. Right. I think it really grew out of my feminist studies and that kind of awakening. The, it just occurred to me that if I had thought of women as possible love objects, that as soon as I did that, I started feeling attracted to women. So it was like this door sort of opened up that had been closed. I think it was just like, it just sort of happened as soon as I allowed in my mind the idea that I could be attracted um, I became incredibly attracted to a friend. So it was a huge thing to tell her because I thought she'd be horrified, and, and she wasn't. Okay, so there's something you need to know that I've been avoiding talking about on our show because I didn't think you would find it that interesting. But it's important now, and that is an explanation of some of our terms. Psychoanalysis is a method of treatment that while very much evolved and deconstructed, comes from the classical Freudian technique. The term is reserved for someone who has gone through intense and accredited psychoanalytic training. It's not usually part of a counseling degree. And the people who select these trainees have historically been extremely selective, as Sally tells us. 
Before a lawsuit that was filed in 1985, only medical doctors were allowed into psychoanalytic training. Those are MDs, not even psychologists with PhDs. So it's only been about the last 30 years that non-medical doctors could become psychoanalysts. The lawsuit claimed under antitrust law that the medical community had a monopoly on psychoanalysis, and the psychologists who filed the suit won in 1988. But the community still remained elite. Even in 1998, 10 years later, the New York Times reported that there were only about 40 openly gay psychoanalytic candidates training in the entire country, and 15 of the 1,000 faculty members were openly non-hetero. So that's part of the fight that feminist psychoanalysts have taken on their shoulders. More from Sally. When I was looking for an analyst, when I was in training, that was a big concern for me, that I'd be able to find an analyst who, who would be open-minded about uh, my sexual ori- orientation. At the time, it was... I wasn't, it's a question that I asked everybody, and of course everybody says, oh, I'm fine with it, but... There's a difference between being fine with it and um, really kind of getting it Mm -hmm. in a a deeper way. I think there, I have felt that there's subtle ways that people still think, and to this day, they still think that it's, I don't know what the right word is, like different. There's still something foreign about it. Mm -hmm. And since there were no lesbian analysts to see, the best I could do was find somebody to kind of not care about it. Because I do think there's some things about being queer that they're not, it's not just like being straight. Right. So the straight therapists who say, oh, I just think of them, they're just like me or anybody else. Um, th- that's not really true. But I think first and foremost, what comes to my mind is the experience you are having in the psychoanalytic commun- community of feeling other, less than, is a one way in which it's not the same. Yes, that's right. Um, but I think that's also part of my who I am as a person that kind of goes back you mentioned the chapter in Steve's book um, where he talked about being adopted I think that being other is uh, was a really uh, primitive primitive early experience for me in some way being adopted created a sense of otherness in my family even though you know, that was never said overtly or wasn't treated that way. Um, I didn't look like anybody else, right? So there is this, I, my brother was six foot six and dark hair and swarthy mm-hmm. complexion and, you know, I'm five two and uh, fair. And so this feeling of otherness is just... Uh, the norm for you? I think so. And I think so there's a way I both... Uh, feel defended against being othered, but I also tend to put myself in the position of the other, in, into otherness. Mm-hmm. I, I think that I do have my choices that keep me in the other position because it's familiar. So I have to be really mindful of that. Yeah. Of my position to make myself an outsider because I really want to be an insider. In some ways, I mean, I think I'm, that's part of, I think, the adoption experience is uh, longing for being inside the thing you can't ever be inside of. We all have our own 
thing that we have lived through that gives us a kind of touchstone for other people's pain, even if it's different or their mm-hmm. way that they're othered. I, th- I think we all have our own things. Some people have really obvious big T trauma, uh, but I think lots and lots of people have some kind of you know s- small T relational trauma that that's a place that we work from mm-hmm. in, our, in ourselves of being able to understand how those we carry those wounds with us and our own tendency to keep finding circumstances where we recreate the old role and to be mm-hmm. able to be mindful of that. So that's one reason I think why psychoanalysis is so important as a requirement to, to be a psychoanalyst, to have your own analysis, is to at least learn what your vulnerabilities are because they can also be strengths mm-hmm. as long as you're... I mean, it's about being mindful of them, being able to use them constructively instead of having them cropping up in, in a bad way mm-hmm. and uh, getting him into trouble, into a reactive or defensive posture. As an analyst, that is one of your strengths, that you... Uh, have, I'm guessing, a keen sense of empathy for those who have the experience of outsiderness? Yes. I know we all end up seeming to attract certain kinds of patients, and I think that's not an accident that I have ended up working with lots of people who are kind of on the schizoid spectrum, and I think I I really, really get. I work well with those people because I get their ambivalence about closeness. Can you explain for someone who might not be trained what you mean by schizoid? Well, one definition of schizoid uh, that I like is that you can't live with people and you can't live without them. Hmm. So it's this feeling that letting people in will invade you or suffocate you or take away your sense of self in some way. Like in the case of my mother, um, who was very intrusive and controlling in you know, like you have to wear these clothes and you have to do this and you have to go to the school. But there's lots of subtle ways that I think relational trauma often has to do with a person having to choose between what they have to do to protect their attachment needs, their need mm-hmm. to feel loved and connected and what they need to do to develop their self, their subjectivity in a way. And oftentimes those things end up in conflict because of a parent's needs or a situation where it, there's just too much anxiety to be able to... And it can happen in a lot of different ways. It can happen with parents who are um, in an unhappy marriage or who have financial trouble or a single parent where the kid becomes preoccupied with worrying about is the parent okay because I need the parent to be okay mm-hmm. so I can be okay. And then that will interfere with a kid being able to develop their own interests, to be able to learn how to get lost in reverie playing with Legos or creating or building something. Mm -hmm. I think a schizoid system of self-protection is an extreme version of trying to keep the world out as much as possible. So I have a patient who is on the extreme end of the schizoid spectrum who is an older person and I'm the only person he talks to mm. uh, but he knows that he, without me that 
he actually needs one person to talk to. So he, he shut out almost every source of contact with other people in his life to make himself feel safe. And has created an inner life of uh, internal object relationships to get so lost in his inner world of fantasy that he tries to get his some of his relational needs met through fantasy because it's just never safe enough for him to try to find that out in the world. And it also seems like our culture is ever more willing to accommodate that these days than, I mean, more than we have ever been. That's a great point that technology has made life easier for a schizoid person. You can stay at home and be on social media or I'm thinking about another patient who only communicated by email because she would get too anxious. But you can even play video games all day and feel like you've interacted with people. Right. Technology has created all these ways that have the schizoid quality built into them. I can only imagine that when you have a patient where who you are the only person who they see every week, uh, combined with the countertransference of that influence of your father looking for meaning and love and and importance in your work that there's a whole mishmash of transference, counter-transference stuff going on there. Yeah, I've seen this person for a long time and I think that early on um, I lost him because I pushed too hard mm. to get him to talk about his inner life mm. and he quit. <laughs> so I learned my lesson, but he did come back. I think what I learned is that you know, some people, I wonder myself, is this helping? Is this psychotherapy? If the analytic police showed up and listened to what we do, would I be in trouble? Um, I, I let him decide what he wants from me and what our relationship would be. And it was actually freeing when some years ago that I decided that I was going to let go of any kind of idea of what he ought to be doing or how I was thinking he needed to change or mm -hmm. what we're trying to do and, and, and just to be with him in as uh, present a way. I really like him, so it's not hard for me to enjoy him. Yeah. But it was really important for me to give up my ideas of what I thought should be happening. And uh, things got much better. I suppose it is like keeping my subjectivity with him enough so that he's not just lost in fantasy. Like he doesn't just take me into his um, into his fantasy world. Uh, so I have to be real enough as an outside person, but not so much that uh, it scares him and makes him want to leave. So classical analysis is extremely rigid and prescriptive in how it interprets the experience of gender. For example, according to Freud, a young girl goes through a phase where she resents her mother for the fact that the young girl has a vagina, and she envies her father's penis. And this envy becomes desire. Now, besides all the patriarchal bullshit that this requires us to accept, we can also acknowledge now, thanks in part to feminist philosophy, that it ignores a great deal of context and to interpret a female patient's conflict with her father simply as arrested penis envy might ignore all kinds of information. So we can say that this kind of interpretation is prescriptive and reductionist and doesn't necessarily serve our patients well. 
I want to go back to feminism and psychoanalysis. Is it different now? Is it, how, have things, how have things changed? Well, one thing that's really changed psychoanalysis, I think, is has been that because of the lawsuit that first allowed PhDs to get into analytic training instead of just MDs, and then the opening up of analytic training to master's level people, mm-hmm. uh, that's really, really changed psychoanalysis. A lot of people say it's feminized psychoanalysis because there's a lot more women practicing psychoanalysis where it used to be a very male-dominated mm-hmm. profession, and even the women that were in it seemed like they had to kind of submit to, I mean, they almost became kind of male-like themselves. The relatedness part has become much more central to how we think about contemporary psychoanalysis. I think in terms of the literature, some of the biggest names, certainly in relational psychoanalysis, are women. I think that in terms of, if you look at the editorial boards and who's uh, editor-in-chief of major journals, that there are lots, lots more women. There are a lot more women who are major voices. Uh, so I think they paved the way for other women's voices to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And have brought, a, have brought a feminist perspective in terms of gender and sexualities. I mean, I think I've embraced the postmodern turn and the, all these uh, other disciplines they bring into psychoanalysis. It's like, well, how, how does this inform what we're trying to do? Like, how does field theory um, apply to psychoanalysis or um, different kinds of uh, uh-huh. disciplines that just read outside of the psychoanalytic literature and then bring it into the, into, into the dialogue? Yeah. There's a lot more talk about sex and sexuality and gender than there used to be. The uptightness used to be so, holds so much sway. The um, desexualizing of psychoanalysis with developmental theory and uh, the idea that sexuality is really more about attachment. The sexuality of Freud which was really about drive and libido and sex in a very physical way to make it be, instead of hot, to be make it just kind of warm. I, I think the contemporary psychoanalysis in the last 20 years has really questioned that and brought back sexuality and trying to think about perversity with an analytic mind instead of perversity just being pathology to recapture some of those words and take them back into something that can be thought about and felt together. That was so much in the service of authenticity in our field and being able to talk about things that weren't talked about before. Contrary to that, keeping up appearances, in which I think was something that was placed on femininity in the 50s and 60s and leading up to the sexual revolution. Well, the... The creation of the femininity of the 50s and 60s was also a cultural phenomenon of the 1940s and during the war when women had to, you know, Rosie the Riveter and women had to work in factories and make airplanes and tires. And there was a cultural push to get women back into the home 
right? Because they had been out of the home doing working and jobs and being competent, and the men were all overseas fighting the war. There, there was a, I think, a distinct cultural demand that they had to figure out how do we get women back in the home uh, and out of the workplace. And there was a tremendous amount of social pressure and uh, manipulation through advertising and all those things to recreate a version of woman that was helpless and dependent and was a domestic goddess who loved raising children and baking cookies and serving her man. Uh, gender is always culturally constructed in some way to serve whatever the economic needs. Sure of the society are. I feel lucky to have been young at the time of to see the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, student movement, and then the women's movements all in my formative years. The culture we live in matters. And so I don't know if people are aware to the idea that if I have a patient who, let's say I have a, a Latino male patient who is anxious the last few months and, and is an immigrant, and our ability to bring the cultural context of the you know our national dialogue around mass deportation into the psychoanalysis that's a that is a con- contribution of feminism's influence on psychoanalysis absolutely yeah. yes yes can you imagine that's a great example of just interpreting um, a latino persons who's, who's maybe here illegally or who has every right in the world to be anxious that you'd be interpreting something about their childhood or their uh, as the cause of their anxiety. As the cause of that anxiety. <laughs> it, was, it'd be, it would be... Crazy making. Yeah. 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 Sally, thanks a lot for talking with me. Well, it was fun. This has been Between Us. Thanks to our guest, Sally Bjorklund. Our sponsor for season two of Between Us is Medify. Medify is the self-awareness app designed to encourage a mindful approach to your mind, body, and emotions. M-E-T-A-F-I. Go get it. Between Us is produced by myself, John Totten, and Mason Neely. Mason also composed our music. If you like the show, find us on your podcast app and subscribe. Feel free to leave us a review on iTunes. You can contact us at betweenuspodcast at gmail.com. Find us on social media too. And until next time, 